This is MIT Technology Review. It's a challenging time for training in many different sectors. The labor market is tight, costs are rising, and the pace of innovation can be breathtaking, especially when it comes to automation and artificial intelligence. That's particularly true with aviation and the military, where some skills are exceptionally dangerous and expensive to acquire, like landing a jet on an aircraft carrier or going head-to-head in aerial fighting. And just before the pandemic, Congress reported nearly four times as many service members had died in training that year than died in combat. Afternoon Tower, Red 1, everybody for takeoff from one v part of the North. This is the second of a two-part series about experiments in how we teach pilots to perform some of the most dangerous and difficult maneuvers. In part one, we focused on artificial agents and how they're learning to do aerial combat. This time, we're going to look at how we're using AI to teach this to humans. Red one, clear, take over right, two, one. All right, so the canopy's coming down. Give me a push up on your canopy, Jen, make sure it's good. I'm Jennifer Strong. In this episode, we experience synthetic dogfighting firsthand because AI is not just changing how we build and train machines, it's also changing how we train ourselves. We'll get you a call sign after the flight. That'd be fun. All right, here we go. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. Absolutely stunning. Yeah, is this beautiful? That's our pilot, call sign T-Mac, otherwise known as Thomas Mackey. If you're feeling well, we'll yep. do some aileron rolls down the coast so you can get that in the uh, GoPro shot, you know? That'd be fantastic. Yeah, you'll love it. He's a retired F-18 pilot and a graduate of the Naval Weapons School, or what you and I might call Top Gun. He's also a director of Red 6, the defense and aerospace tech company that built this aircraft, and the augmented reality system I'm about to see from the sky through the visor of my flight helmet. So the first thing I'm going to do is uh, once we hit about 6,500 feet, I'm going to show you the showroom, and uh, that's a good way to see all the different objects coming across. It'll have the tankers and a bunch of the uh, adversaries and fighters. We're flying over the Pacific off the Southern California coast. We're in a real plane in the real sky, but that showroom of objects he's talking about are synthetic. And as you'll hear over the course of this flight, some are AI-enabled to interact with us or even try to kill us. There are many things that feel absolutely nuts about this moment. But let's start with some basics. If you've ever used AR outdoors, you've probably had it get all glitchy or even stop working altogether as you move around. It's also pretty typical to have trouble seeing it in bright light. That's not what's happening here. The sun is setting and its glare over the ocean is gorgeous, but intense. And unlike my phone screen, I have no problem seeing these objects. And then as we're coming across the side, that's a F-22 Raptor. And that's a Chinese J-20, which this is about the only place you'll ever see something like this with that kind of clarity. That's an Air Force T-38. That's a F-18 F Super Hornet. These aircraft are vibrantly colored and extremely realistic. 
He takes me through some refueling exercises and formation flying that are hair-raising. The whole point is we can't collide with these other aircraft, but some feel close enough to touch. And it's about to get a whole lot wilder, because learning to land on an aircraft carrier is extremely difficult and dangerous, and we're about to practice on one that's not really there. There's the carrier. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that just crazy? So this is an uh, approach I've done a few times with my career. Now look at the water when you look down. Now look at the wake of uh, the reflection of the sun. That's crazy. And the wake. So I'm flying a no-shit carrier approach. <laughs> so what I'm going to do once I get this approach, Jen, uh-huh. is after I'm done, I'm going to slide over to the catapult so you can feel what a catapult So This is the USS Ford that just deployed the brand new ship. And this is actually, if I do say so myself, a pretty decent approach. You can see the wires down there. Yeah. So I just caught the three wire, which is the one you want to catch. And I'm going to slime over here to the right. And I'm going to give you a run right down the uh, catapult. So this is what it would feel like going on the catapult stroke. And what I want you to get out of this is when you pull off the ship, look down. Doesn't it feel like we're 50 feet over the water right now? It's incredible. And that's what it really feels like. And I'm like, the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to turn the tech off. And we're at 4,000 feet, right? Yeah. And the first time I saw that, I was like, my inclination was to pull up like, ah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the more crazier sets we've got because of the immersion there. And it's one of the craziest things I've ever experienced. But my body is not used to pulling G's, which is how pilots talk about the gravitational forces that come with the territory up here while doing this kind of flying. So I'm going to come back around again, and we're going to do the surface-to-air missile shot. So this is something that is impossible to train to except for us because right now when we train to it we just use radar or we have a couple smoking service air missiles off the deck but nothing to this level so i'm going to turn the tech on and i'm going to go ahead and launch one two three four five and if you look down at your left side at 11 o'clock you see those smoke streams coming at you oh i see them yep this would ruin your whole day (laughs) so what i'm going to do next is i'm going to fire a couple off and we're going to go and defend against them. So if I saw these coming to get me to kill me, I would take my turn away. And as the missile gets closer, I want to get rid of the end game. So as I'm coming down to doing about 200 knots, I'm going to pull up and try to basically roll around these things. We get out of that. All right, so how are you feeling about dogfighting? I'm excited to try it. I can't promise my stomach won't go. Okay, so that's the last thing on our agenda before we take the coast home. So let's give it a whirl. All right. This is actually good too because it's into the sun. So it'll be a good depiction of showing how strong the tech is. So I'm going to come back out here. He's out there to our right. And I'm going to go ahead and activate him to fight. So. Is this uh, AI or or program? So this is strictly AI, 100%. So there he goes. So he's coming head to head with us. I see that. That's a pretty cool shot. (laughs) Jeez. Jeez. That's the computer saying we're pulling G's. And what you can't see right now looks a lot like a Top Gun movie, except I don't black out in those. And the crazier it gets in here, the more T-Max sounds zen on this mic. So we're gonna merge, come back around. There he is again. And we're gonna go ahead and roll around. And pull some G's and come up at him. I'm gonna show you how we shoot the gun here. So, shot across, and I'm going to pull a little more G's here. This is going to be the shot we're going to shoot him with. G's. 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 Over G's. 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 There goes a missile. Boom. Are you with me? 
Jen, you okay? Yeah, just give me a second. Yep, take all the time. We're gonna. No paper towels in here, eh? Hi. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling? I'm great now. <laughs> it's totally normal. This is something we don't do in training because it's uh, the chances of having a mid-air collision and hitting each other are really, really high. So that's another training tool that we have available to see him smoking going by to register the hit. And there he goes by smoking. Crazy, huh? It is crazy. Actually, if you could do a selfie uh, with that <laughs> in the background, that would be epic. The amount of vomit on me right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> How we train pilots is changing, almost as fast as the tech itself. And figuring out how to safely manage all this is a giant puzzle with many moving parts, from developing curriculum to figuring out how to safely put new tech in the cockpit. And to meet some more people thinking deeply about all this, we head a few hours inland to the California desert and the Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base. My name is Chris Cotting. I'm the Director of Research at the Air Force Test Pilot School. So one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is the Test Pilot School is older than the Air Force. Training both test pilots and, and actually starting the 1970s flight test engineers as well. We also have weapons systems officers, so people like either doing navigation on aircraft or, or managing a lot of the weapon systems of the aircraft and how do they test those systems as well. Though he thinks it's a bit misleading calling it a test pilot school with all the engineers that come through here. He says it's more about teaching people how to do tests. One of the nice things about being at the school here is almost on a daily basis, I get to see something that I did actually out being done. In general, I can go play with something on my desktop, and that afternoon I can go see it get implemented. This is possible through the VISTA project, which is an aircraft that lets them plug and play any algorithm they want, take it up to the air, and test it in real time. Because it's a flying simulator, we can program it to fly like multiple aircraft. So over the period of an hour of students flying that airplane, they can fly 20 or 30 different airplanes without having to come land. So it exposes them to things we're teaching in the classroom, in the air, in a very methodical and a very deliberate way. The flight school first got the Vista in the early 2000s, but like with any tech, its power and efficiency went down over time. In the early days, the raw compute power driving the simulations on Vista were far less powerful than the phone you might be listening to this podcast on. And so we decided to do a, a, a large-scale redesign of the airplane. We have a whole new simulation system that we've put in. We've also put a whole new system in on top of that for supporting AI research. We have multiple single-board computers, and we have the ability to pull them out and reconfigure them depending on what we want to test. So I can put GPUs in there, I can put CPUs, all just depending on what is required for that particular application. On top of that, we have multiple data links where I can take the airplane and make it appear in my lab as an IP address, just like any other computer. But unlike a computer, the protocols built into Vista simulations also need to function in the real world, in a high-altitude, high-speed environment of the skies. No one bothers to think about wind in their simulations. You put wind in, and all of a sudden the algorithms are not where they think they are, and they don't know how to get to where they need to be, and they start falling apart. Andy says VISTA has helped solve a very big problem of transitioning experimental aircraft simulations into reality. So what that means is what you're training your AI on, we can make VISTA fly exactly like that. So that when you go out and fly your algorithm for the first time, you are going to get, hopefully, what you saw in your lab. Now what we can then do is we can start slowly peeling those protective layers of reality away. And we can do it in a deliberate manner 
as opposed to just you being hit all at once the first time you'd go and fly your airplane. So it allows us to be a very methodical in how we introduce your theoretical system into, into reality. He says the nice thing about Vista is anytime they don't like what's happening up there, the pilot in the cockpit can simply turn the tech off and fly at home, where they can analyze what happened. And so it allows us to really accelerate uh, the development of AI and other algorithms for, for aircraft. The other thing we can do is if you have an airplane that you want to go build, and you have a simulation for it, give us your simulation. We can go fly it on Vista before you ever built the aircraft. And we can tell you whether or not it's going to perform well for your mission before you've ever spent money to build and flight test that airplane. Uh, There's a group of us here chatting for more than an hour in a classroom that feels like it's right out of a movie. Most are wearing flight suits, and there's the sound of fighter jets coming and going in the background as we make room in our circle for one more. The level of automation that we see in modern aircraft is really astonishing. And I think that this is something that the, the public just really doesn't understand. And it turns out to be one of the school's luminaries. My name is Bill Gray. I'm a chief test pilot here at the test pilot school. I've been uh, in flight test now for about 30 years, graduated from the school in 1992. Before that, I was an Air Force pilot flying T-37s, F-111s. You know, people are scared to death to sit in an airplane that isn't being flown by a pilot. But what they don't know is that that pilot's only effective and safe because he's operating a system that is completely not dependent on him. If that flight control computer fails, if those electronic actuators, if the systems that run the engines, the fuel controls, all that stuff is run on computers. If that stuff fails, there's nothing that pilot can do. This automation has kind of changed what it means to be a pilot. It's made it easier to be a pilot. It's made it harder to be a test pilot because now sometimes you have to be able to fly without the automation, but you have to be able to test the automation. And so I asked him to walk us through these changes over the course of his career. It was human skills that got the airplane from point A to point B, whether it be navigation or just handling the aircraft. So the people that were in my class had those skills. The people that are entering the school now have far fewer of those skills. The problem is when you're doing flight tests, you're testing the automation. So the pilot becomes a backup. So we find that we're having to select pilots based in part on their actual core flying ability. In other words, do they have the skills and technical know-how to take tasks back from the machine when it fails and to test the automation itself to know if it's trustworthy? There's also this issue of overtrust, and that's incredibly commonplace, though we often don't realize it. I'm curious to hear you talk about trust. I'm wondering how that fits into the curriculum, how it fits did, into your own work. Did he set you up? No. Oh what God. happened? <laughs> <laughs> so trust trust is a passion project of mine. Oh, good. Because, uh, because I've been listening to people talk about trust for years, but I've been dealing with trust issues, and not trust issues in the meme sense, but trust issues in the, how do we work with, it, with machines? What I'm hearing is, we need to figure out how to get people to trust AI. We need, it's a, it's a, trust is a big problem, people don't trust it. And I think what they're doing is they're hearing people say, I would never fly on an airliner without a pilot. All right, that's just because they don't have a clue. In reality, we overtrust. We absolutely overtrust. You know, that's why when you drive your fancy car with traffic control, you never turn it off and learn to drive without it. I will get in my, my Toyota and I will drive today. It's gonna to be 125 degrees out in the desert. I could go up right now. I'll, I'll just go drive out there and drive back and I won't bring water. Why? Because I know the car is good and the odds of it breaking down are super, super small. And I got a cell phone anyway, so 
Hopefully I'll have a connection I can make it. I'm severely over-trusting that system, right? We all over-trust. And I think the problem with AI is not that there's gonna be a problem integrating it. The problem is once we integrate it, people are gonna over-trust it. Now over-trusting has two problems. One is you're not prepared when it fails. But another problem is when it does fail, now you've lost that trust and getting it back gets really, really hard. So, so to me, testing of AI and machine learning is less about how do we establish trust and more about how do we earn trust. In a moment, we learn more about the tech I experienced in the air earlier this episode, including how it works. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Brian Bryson, Director of Event Content and Experiences here at MIT Technology Review. I'm popping into this podcast to invite you to our upcoming AI conference, MTech Digital. MTech Digital is MIT Technology Review's executive briefing on artificial intelligence, its implementation, and impact on business and society. If you're tasked with integrating AI into customer offerings or using AI to streamline operations, this is your once-a-year opportunity to meet and network with the peers and leaders on the cutting edge of AI. Learn more about this exclusive event at mtechdigital.com. past few weeks, we've been taking a moment to explore some of the rapid recent change with how we test and train pilots, both human ones and, in the case of the last episode, artificial ones too. Some of these themes are quite familiar. In order for these systems to be useful, we need to trust them. But figuring out just how, when, and why to trust them remains a massive challenge. Meanwhile, the breakthroughs continue, as does the race to be first, right, and best. And even more so when we're talking about militaries. Then, there's also the skyrocketing cost of training, especially in dynamic and dangerous situations. My thesis was if I can make AR work outdoors and in dynamic environments, and I can control the behavior of those entities using AI, then we do the best of, of both worlds. Hi, I'm Dan Robinson. I'm the CEO and founder of Red6. That's the company behind the flight I experienced earlier in this episode. Red6 is a, an aerospace and defense tech company that has created the world's first outdoor military metaverse up in the sky. And the idea was to create a synthetic world into which real pilots and real airplanes can take off, go up into the sky, and train against relevant adversary aircraft at scale. It's a sharp departure from how fighter pilots are typically trained. And he just announced a partnership with Lockheed Martin and others to put this tech into more aircraft. I was a fighter pilot, and traditionally the way we train is uh, you'd use both simulators and aircraft, but in, in very distinct ways or very different things. Simulators are very good for repetition-based tasking, getting muscle memory and memory patterns ingrained in you. When you strap a high-performance airplane onto you, like an F-22 Raptor, 
that's an altogether different animal. And that thing, you know, obviously the cognitive demands on, on a fighter pilot in, in modern air combat are enormous because, you know, we're doing a multitude of things. We're managing seven TV screens at once, talking on three radios, controlling multiple airplanes in the sky. Think of us as kind of like three-dimensional chess players. Robinson went to Britain's version of Top Gun and was one of the first non-Americans to pilot an F-22, though he's now a U.S. citizen, and that's what he's referring to when he says us. He says it's increasingly difficult to train fighter pilots in a way that's relevant. And when a pilot goes up to fly and train, they often need an opponent to train against, which adds up to billions of dollars a year in military spending. We still get to fly real airplanes and do the, the, the job as we would be for real. But now, rather than incurring the costs to provide adversary aircraft to train against, we can do that through simulation. And maybe this goes without saying, but visually accessing a digital world from up in the sky while traveling at the speed of aerial combat is not a simple task. We obviously can't fly around in virtual reality and blind to the outside world. So the question was, and the central core problem we had to solve was, can we make augmented reality work outdoors and in the most dynamic environments of all? Fundamentally, we're trying to mimic human vision and allow us to access and train against synthetic entities that aren't really there. And the problem was when we started the company that augmented reality as an industry doesn't work outside or or in dynamic environments. And I mean, if you put any headset on and walk outside at five miles an hour, it won't work for a multitude of technical reasons. One is we don't necessarily always understand where the human being is looking uh, sufficiently quickly enough to be able to draw, and we don't understand our environment around us. Another issue, optics. You know yourself, if you take your iPhone outside or whatever phone you have and you, you try to look at it in the sunlight, you just can't see it. And it's a similar problem simplified for, for augmented reality headsets. You know, we need to be bright enough. We need to have a wide field of view for it to be usable for, for fighter pilots. And so central to the, the technology stack that we have is we've, we've figured out how to understand where the human being is looking at any one point in time in absolute terms relative to the real world. And having done that, we then had to be able to access a visual world in such a compelling way that it made sense to us and it felt like re- you know, you, we could see it. It almost feels tactile in nature. It feels realistic. And so we developed our own proprietary optical system that now is a super wide field of view. We're talking about 160 degree field of view. And to contrast that to other stuff that's on the market, you're talking 30 to 40 degrees, depending on how you measure it. So vastly superior in terms of field of view. After he figured out the fundamentals of how to access that digital world, he says the next step was to figure out what world to step into and how it should behave. I'm talking about being able to go up in a real airplane look out of the window and see an augmented reality airplane that isn't there. The next thing is, well, how does that airplane behave? At the really high end, we needed to be able to think and fly and fight for itself. And that's where we get into behavior and and AI. The system is initially trained through scripted behavior. We are asking the entities to to do pre-described, maybe like routes through the sky that are familiar with us as fighter pilots in terms of how we see interaction on a day-to-day basis. Because the way we train fighter pilots is very much in a building block approach. So if this, then that. As we start to get into the more advanced scenarios now, we have fully autonomous AI algorithms that are reinforced learning in nature, right? That, That are ultimately learning as they go and flying against us. And just to double down on what that means is I'm sitting in my airplane, looking out through this custom optics stack that we've built, which is a part of the overall system. I can see virtual airplanes 
and those virtual airplanes are thinking and flying and fighting for themselves and trying to kill me, which is amazing. So now I end up in really advanced dogfighting scenarios against AI algorithms driving something that doesn't exist. It's the craziest thing to see. His ultimate goal is to develop a system capable of simulating a constantly evolving tactical, operational, and strategic landscape. Through the metaverse, I believe we can start to simulate living, breathing worlds that will allow us to train at what I would call a a campaign level, where we exert effect, we understand the consequences of those effects, and then the next wave that goes up inherits those outcomes, and so on and so forth. And that allows us to do multi-week campaigns modeled against very specific threat scenarios around the world. And I think the ultimate vision is we should be able to do that against an entirely synthetic adversary force. It gives militaries a safer and less costly way to train, as technology accelerates the pace of war and starts to level the playing field between nations. You have to understand that we've been involved in conflicts in the Middle East for the last 20 to 30 years, where we've had air dominance. We've enjoyed complete controls of the sky. And and during that time, two things have happened on the world stage. You've seen the reemergence of Russia onto the world stage as a state actor, which we're seeing to detriment, terrible effect in, in Ukraine right now. And most importantly is, is the very real rise of China and in which you see a long-term geopolitical strategy aligned to a mobilization of a defense industrial base. And a central tenant to that mobilization is innovation. And I say all of that because the pace of innovation now is such that for the first time, the United States is staring down the barrel of a, a true peer adversary with technology that is at least as capable of ours. In, in, some, in some cases worse, in some cases beyond, but by and large, they're, they're on par with us. And if we're not concerned about that, we should be. And I say all of that because it was becoming increasingly difficult to train against modern threats. And we were never going to be able to do that using live, live airplanes at scale. So we had to find a different way. And my view was that technology was the answer. This episode was reported and produced by me and Anthony Green with help from Emma Silicons. It was edited by Matt Honan, mixed by Garrett Lang, with original music by Garrett Lang and Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.